Welcome to the Exhale Podcast, a candid conversation about current matters relating to respiratory diagnostic and lung health. Today's hosts are Mark Russell, Marketing Communications Manager, and Troy Pridgen, Executive Vice President of Sales and Operations for Vitalgraph in North America, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. We met Gary Wong at AARC in November. Gary is an RT from Hawaii, and we'd invited him to our show to discuss this post-acute respiratory care and pulmonary rehab ventilator program in the islands. Gary, uh, welcome to our podcast. Hey, aloha, Mark. It's such a pleasure to be chatting with you today and your worldwide audience. Well, please give us a little background on yourself, education, experience, and what your current responsibilities are. First of all, it's, um, I was born and raised in Hawaii on the island of Oahu, and I decided to become a respiratory therapist after volunteering at the hospital. And I did that not knowing what I wanted to do in healthcare. I went and rotated through pharmacy, the lab, and ER, and finding the ICU as a ward clerk. And at that time, they were trying to admit a critically ill patient from the ER and they wanted me to call respiratory therapy for a ventilator. And I had no idea what a respiratory therapist was and what a ventilator was. But after watching how the therapist was interacting with the team and put the patient on the mechanical ventilator, I said, that's what I wanted to be. So I've been a respiratory therapist for over 40 years now. So when I got out of school, I did my training in Los Angeles since there wasn't a school here in Hawaii at that time. I originally specialized in neonatal pediatrics and practiced at Kapilani Women's and Children's Medical Center for five years as the clinical coordinator. That was a very good experience and very rewarding. My goal at that time was to try to be the director or at that time they used to call it the chief of the department. It was just around that time where the healthcare industry was changing, DRGs were in effect, and they wanted to get these chronic COPD patients that were really staying in, in the hospital just to get oxygen. So at that time, there was a proliferation of many home care providers, and they wanted me to come on board. And at first, I hesitated because, you know, I love the kids, and it would mean working with the adults. But I thought about it and I said, this might be good experience. And so for nine years, I ran a successful home health care company in Hawaii under Glass Rock. And we were a big DME and oxygen provider. And then after that, I stayed in the healthcare industry. I worked for the healthcare, a couple of commercial healthcare insurance plans, doing provider relations, contracting for the networks, doing some marketing and business development. My last and proudest moment was, you know, I did some practice management. I ran a cancer center that had chemotherapy, radiation, oncology, and gamma knife services. I also had the opportunity to manage a statewide anesthesia medical group. So all that was a wonderful experience. And then you're probably wondering how I got into post-acute care. And that's pretty much what I want to share with the audience, Mark, this this uh, on this podcast is I got into post-acute care, which which in Hawaii is really in the SNF environment because there's a lack of long-term care acute facilities in Hawaii or LTACs for medically complex ventilator and trach patients that are, are dependent. 
And currently, I'm the Respiratory Services Director at Island Skilled Nursing. And Island Skilled Nursing is a 42-bed SNF. We're five-star CMS-rated nursing facility in, in Honolulu, so we're pretty proud of that. And we specialize in post-acute care and pulmonary rehab of weaning medically complex patients that are ventilator dependent and have a tracheostomy. And that gives the audience a little bit background. And then I volunteer my time back to the medical community and to the Respiratory Society. I'm currently the president for the Hawaii Society for Respiratory Care. Some people know, it, know us as the HSRC. And I'm proud that I'm participating with the American Association for Respiratory Care, the AARC, in the House of Delegate as the representative for the state of Hawaii. Well, hey, Gary, this is Troy. So you mentioned that you're active with the, the pulmonary rehab, ventilator weaning, and tracheostomy decannulation programs there at, at Islands. Can you expand for our, our listeners, just uh, those who might not be entirely sure what, what that involves? Yes. Thanks, Troy. Much of the program success at Islands is for our specialized weaning and tracheostomy decannulation program. Is It's basically a result of putting together a dedicated staff, and I have a staff of about 27 post-acute care respiratory therapists. And much of it, to do our work, it's dependent on the staffing ratio. So here at Islands, we have a staffing ratio of one therapist to 10 patients. So that really helps. So time with the patient at the bedside. And to sustain that, we recruit therapists that have excellent bedside communication skills and exhibit compassionate care. In the acute care environment, the therapist really doesn't have to have these strengths because most of the times the patients we see are in, in, the, in the acute care are in ICU and they're intubated so they can't talk or they're, they're paralyzed and sedated. So we don't really have to have good bedside communication skills. And much of it I've reflected and I, I feel that because we function as a specialty respiratory care and we do it as a group practice, where all the therapists are focused primarily on the patient's recovery. I think that's the secret sauce there, functioning as a specialized uh, group practice there, just like how the doctors do. And lastly, attributed to having active pulmonary rounds with Dr. Eric Crowley, who's our medical director and also is a board certified pulmonologist. A couple other things that, that uh, make this program really nice is we we really take the opportunity because of our staffing ratio to spend a lot of time at the bedside developing personal relationships with each patient and perform more patient-centric care and ventilator weeding right at the bedside. We stay with them continuously through that. Everything we do is patient-centric and evidence-based. We use a therapist-implemented patient-specific weaning protocol. And in the medical field, you'll know it as tips that patients are guided through a patient-centric step-by-step method. And then we try to implement it and monitor it at bedside with the goal of independent breathing. On that staffing, you were talking about that ratio. That's phenomenal. Do you have a hard time keeping up with staffing like the rest of the country since we see a lot of less 
therapists being trained and, and certified in the across the country? That's very good, Mark, because, yeah, if we, we're not immune to workforce shortages and especially respiratory therapists. In Hawaii, we do have an inherent shortage of uh, respiratory therapists since we really only have one respiratory care practitioner program at Kapilani uh, Community College. So I had a chance and we have the Healthcare Association doing workforce studies and they came out with the latest health, Hawaii Healthcare Workforce Initiative, there's their 2022 report, and they show for respiratory therapists in, in the whole state, we have 46 open positions, which represents 11% of the positions. So what happened during the pandemic, we were very fortunate, like other states who had the need that FEMA came in, gave us fundings, and then got us some FEMA respiratory therapists. This process, you know, is only sustainable for a short period of time. So in the interim, many of the hospitals, especially the neighbor islands of Maui, Kauai, and the Big Island, use traveling therapists primarily to do their staffing. And who doesn't want to live in Hawaii? I mean, I think that uh, that you would have a, you know, a higher rate of placement there in Hawaii with uh, some of the therapists. But like you said, uh, if you only have one training program right there in the islands, that's kind of tough. It's hard to uh, recruit, actually, Mark and Troy, when you think about it, because if you don't come with the agency who pays for your travel expenses, gives you a per diem, you know, in your housing, it's it's kind of tough because the cost of living here is um, at least 20% higher than the mainland. And the wages are, are I think, uh, in, in most of our professions, it's, you know, in the top five. So we do pay, pay well, but the cost of living is a barrier to entry for most uh, of our colleagues that, you know, they primarily reside on the mainland. So they really have to have some connection here in Hawaii with a relative or they have a passion to work here because they visit here and they like the lifestyle. So we call it the uh, paradise tax. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, that's the barrier to entry because, you know, the weather here is nice. The lifestyle here is nice. And if everything was wonderful, I always say that, you know, Hawaii would be New York city overnight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Saving money on snowblowers, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that, but, uh, you take kind of taking the other side of it, I guess, what types of patients really make good candidates for the pulmonary rehabilitation program? That's a good question. The candidates I feel that are good candidates start off by first us, our team going uh, directly to the hospital ICU and doing it the old fashioned way. We do bedside rounds there because the typical admission process for the post-acute is they give you the history and physical and the medical records to review to decide if the patient's appropriate and, and if you're going to accept them. But on balance, when you read it, it's only a snapshot and what the clinicians or the medical team there wants to document. So a lot of it is um, eyes on the patient. When we do those medical rounds, it's part of the discharge planning process. And we can really go and talk to the hospital staff, which includes the, the nursing team, the hospitalist, the case manager, the social worker, and then get the background history and what's their plans and what they think of uh, the patients that can recover. And then we lastly talk to the patients, of course, and then the patient's family. And much of it, we find out that the patients 
don't really hear any communication from the hospital. What's going to happen to them? Are they going to be ventilator dependent? And with the trach the rest of their life, the hospital really doesn't tell them because they themselves don't know. So we tell them our, about our program here at Islands and how that post-care recovery journey is going to look like. Most patients are good candidates since their cause of respiratory failure was not due to neurological conditions that affect their breathing, such as ALS and myasthenia gravis. And of course, we, we consider the cognitive state of the patient. If they're not cognitive, it's kind of hard to rehab them because they have to follow commands. It makes it a challenge. But that being said, we've taken patients with marginal cognitive status and they just surprised us. But most of the patients who are admitted to the program are given the opportunity to participate in the pulmonary rehab program, regardless of what the hospital had documented. We give everybody a chance. So you're doing this for about seven years now. I've come to realize that much of our success is really based on the patient's willingness to do the hard work of weaning and the decannulation process, because it's hard work. It's like, if you remember in high school, if you didn't like PE, this is like high school PE all over again. It's very hard. So it's the patient's willingness to do the hard work of weaning and decannulation and participating in the rehab therapies, you know, not saying, no, I'm too tired. They just push on. And then lastly, if we all consider the fact that whenever we have these tragic events, people always say, my thoughts and prayers are with you. I've seen it firsthand where we have to really acknowledge the power of prayer and the healing presence of God because we only can do so much in the medical field. So I've seen myself some medical miracles that are unexplainable. These ventilation patients' journey from acute care to post-care, what, what is that journey? Could you kind of give it a little bit more a description of that? So most of the uh, journey from acute care to post-acute care, it's helpful for the audience to to realize there's two different journeys for this patient. The acute care journey really starts when they go into respiratory failure, usually in the ER or ICU where they can't sustain their own ventilation and oxygenation. And from that point, an artificial airway is put in, an ET tube, and mechanical ventilation is established. And when you think about it, it's a full court press of all the medical specialists to make interventions and care plans to solve the patient's medical condition. But by day 14, if it's still the standards of care to protect that patient's upper airway and focal cords for swallowing, and so if the patient still needs to be on mechanical ventilation, the patient then undergoes a surgical procedure to perform a tracheostomy, where a tracheostomy tube is inserted into the patient's neck. And by this time, the patient requires some nutrition because they haven't been fed, they're just getting IV fluid. And so a gastric tube is surgically placed inside the stomach so they can get nutrition. And then during this period, the patient's been recovering from being in respiratory failure and is ready to be weaned off the ventilator by the hospitalist and the respiratory therapist. But oftentimes, Mark and Troy, the medical team is not able to successfully wean these patients since they have been really deconditioned and decompensated and can't tolerate the work of breathing during the weaning process. So it's not like our colleagues uh, aren't skilled 
and trained in it is just hard at that point in time. The patient can't tolerate the, the weaning process. So to complicate all of this, you know, just being in the ICU, uh, many experience what they call the post-ICU syndrome. And that's where the patients exhibit signs of insomnia, anxiety, PTSD, and that anxiety really prohibits them from being weaned off the ventilator. And that causes ventilator dependence and lack of confidence. So that layers on top of why patients are often not successful after day 14. In transitioning to post-acute, when the patient is medically stable and can be nurse managed, where you don't need 24-7 physician care, it's oftentimes a warm handoff from the ICU to our post-acute care ventilator and weaning program. So when you look at it, this process that I described also solves the hospital's constant challenge of making a critical ICU bed available because they're always, no matter what hospital in the country, there's always a lot of patients waiting for an ICU bed in the ER. To expand on that, the, a patient's journey in post-acute is focused on recovering versus survival in acute care. And that's the primary difference. So they survived their initial insult, and then now in post-acute, we're trying to get them to recover. So part of that involves getting them to talk again. So the weaning process actively involves a, a talking valve, and most people in the medical field know, know it as the Passimir speaking valve, or you'll mm -hmm. see it documented as a PMV, and that allows the patients with the tracheostomy to speak and communicate even when they're on the ventilator. So that's the game changer, because up at that point, from when they had their insult, the in ET tube goes down and you can't talk. So when we use the PMV, it enhances our weaning ventilator progress and improves the decannulation outcome. So within 72 hours of admission, we assess whether we can put on the PMV. And much of it is if the patient can tolerate cuff deflation. Because with the ET tube and the tracheostomy tube, part of the ventilation is making a closed system in the lung. So there is a inflatable balloon cuff in there that will seal off the trachea so that all the air stays in the lungs and goes in and out through the airways. So we actually do it in reverse of our colleagues in the acute care. We want that cuff deflated so we can use the passing air. So there's three tracks for the patient's journey for post-acute care recovery. You got the medical team that keeps the patient's medical condition stable, and they're always assessing for changes of conditions so that they can intervene and prevent hospital readmissions. Then the second track is the respiratory therapy team. They're assessing the patient and always developing a patient-centric weaning and decannulation plan specifically for that patient. And the last one where it's different than acute care, you have a multidisciplinary rehab team working on short-term rehab to assist the patients in the recovery process so they can safely return home. In the hospital, they don't do rehab. The rehab team there of OTPT speech goes in and evaluates the patients to see if they would benefit from going to a skilled facility. So the success of the patient's journey really can be measured by their achievements in any one of these tracks. It really is a step-by-step -step process, isn't it? So, you know, following up, I guess, on that, then, you know, at, at once they're discharged from the hospital, 
uh, as Hawaii's, you know, obviously fairly spread out. You have multiple different islands. What's the infrastructure like for follow-up spirometry or assessment with these folks? I mean, do you guys uh, rely on telemedicine, for example, or are there a lot of clinics on the various islands? Troy, you, you're you're very succinct because right now the healthcare delivery system is in progress. So the current system doesn't allow for much follow-up from from our facility. We do a 30-day follow-up, and upon discharge, if they do need home health services, we do set that all up. Any kind of equipment they need, and then basically it it's up to their primary care physician to then guide them through the rest of recovery. I'd like to see in the future, and I think some of my colleagues will agree, we can develop programs, like you said, where there's actual, like a follow-up clinic. And with COVID, we, we're realizing there's a lot of uh, long COVID out there. So in Hawaii, we're trying to develop a long COVID clinic. And then for islands, we're thinking of partnering with some of the healthcare systems and maybe the payers to look at remote patient monitoring and, and telemedicine. Yeah, and I guess to recently in the news, just to, to make things even more interesting, uh, there, there's been uh, some active volcanic eruptions from Mauna Loa. Uh, how does like, that kind of volca volcanic outgassing really affect the air quality and the lungs? You're right, Troy. It's been on the news. You never get tired of it. Uh, Mauna Loa is the latest eruption, but we have an active volcanic activity in, in Kilauea, its sister volcanic cousin there. And anytime there's a volcanic eruption, just to give the audience a little background, the Hawaiian culture, they have the Hawaiian goddess of volcano and they tribute the creation of the Hawaiian islands to Madame Pele. And Madame Pele, often creates such a display of fountains and flow of lava. And that's how really the ions were generated from these lava flows. And, and over time, you know, the lava would break down to soil, but that's how our island formed from these eruptions. So in Hawaii, we have to be very aware of the air quality of the volcanic smog, or you'll see it called fog with its harmful sulfur dioxide gas and sulfur aerosols. So yeah, a lot of people with pre-existing respiratory conditions are more prone to adverse effects of VOG. So what you experience is short-term health symptoms, including eye, nose, throat, and skin irritation. And then on the respiratory part, you'll be coughing and there'll be a lot of mucus and you'll feel your chest tightening. And then of course, shortness of breath. And so the American Lung Association has recommended some excellent ways to protect your lungs and it's just like anything else. Uh, if you can stay indoors and protect the air in the home, you create your own environment there. If you're in the lava flow area, the state is very good about asking you to evacuate because you could lose your house or home in, in a second. And then if you do experience any of those symptoms that I just mentioned, especially chest tightness and their shortness of breath, you should seek medical attention pretty early on. And then if you have to be driving when it's in a fog condition, you know, closing your car windows and vents while driving, you keep your environment safe. And in Hawaii, they always tell you what the fog level is. And so knowing that if you have to be outside, just makes sense to wear a N95 mask because that will help filter out any of the harmful particles. 
So, Gary, they don't do any more sacrifice to stop with these volcanoes? No, not like the movies, Mark. I mean, <laughs> if anything, I, I'll offer up your competitors. Okay, sounds good. There's so much buzz about next year's chess annual meeting being in Hawaii. Uh, how, how are you going to be involved with that? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because um, I just found out that the chess meeting was going to be in Hawaii, and we're very thrilled when they come to Hawaii. It helps our economy, of course, because we're tourist based. I'm going to be involved as a faculty member, and I'm partnering with one of the pulmonologists and the director of respiratory therapists from Yale University and Hospital. So we'll be talking about mechanical ventilation during the pandemic. So I'm very happy to and honored to be asked to do that. And then before that, just by fate, I'm the president of the Hawaii Society for Restorative Care, and we're going to be celebrating our 50th annual conference on the island of Oahu the week prior. So September 27th to 28th, we'll be at the Prince Waikiki Hotel in Honolulu. Wow, you're going to be busy. Yes. Well, hey, Gary, this has been great. Uh, we've never interviewed anybody from the islands, and we ran into each other at the AARC, and, and uh, we were really gracious uh, for you to be a, a guest on here on our podcast, and uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to uh, share information with your audience. You've reached the end of another episode of the Exhale podcast. Don't forget to follow us for upcoming new episodes and recommend this podcast to friends and family. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on the Excel podcast brought to you by Vitalograph.